Are you enjoying this podcast? Well, you have KUOW members to thank for that. KUOW members make the trusted local journalism and storytelling you hear on this show possible. Become a member today and help support the production of this podcast. It only takes a minute. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. I don't know if my guests share my state of being rocked by the newscast item we just heard about a giant black bear in Issaquah with a collar that's too tight um, that apparently likes backyards. And I don't know how black bears react when its collar is too tight. But uh, yes, so just call the State Fish and Wildlife Department if that is sighted. Hi, everybody. Nice sighting you today. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having us here. Great to have Great you to on the hear. show. We we have, by the way, Isabella Breda from the Everett Herald. She's a city's reporter there. Uh, Hannah Weinberger, Crosscut Science and Environment staff reporter. Erica Barnett, Publicola editor and co-host of the Seattle Nice podcast. As I was saying, welcome. Thanks for coming on again. Hello. Hello, and we're streaming. We're dis- discuss- I don't think you're too dark, Erica. I think it is a, a noirish look that suits you. <laughs> yeah, I'm it's... sort of banished to this office right now. <laughs> That's good. So we're streaming the show. I, I can see them, and so can you, because we're on uh, YouTube and Facebook. You just search KUOW Public Radio. Okay, so uh, uh, beyond the black bear, the giant collared black bear, what we do on the show is figure out what happened this week. With, uh, with three local journalists and uh, dis- discuss what it all means. So let's get at it, starting with our pandemic. Uh, the COVID case levels are still rising in King County. They're now four times higher than in mid-March. The CDC has moved King County from yellow to green on its community transmission map, which the county's top health officer, Dr. Jeff Duchin, says is not enough to bring back indoor mask mandates. But we should see this yellow traffic lights as a slowdown and use this opportunity to lower our risk and the risk for those around us and to think more about how we'll manage the ongoing challenge of COVID-19 sustainably over the long term. I was telling my guest before the show, I'm getting so many emails about positive tests from my office, my kids' school, friends of mine that I'm I'm not even... Uh... I'm not reading them anymore. It's like, uh, as my wife said, it's like everybody who didn't get COVID already, it's now our turn. Right. You know, I, Bill, would rather think about a bear that was so successful Mm. that the state literally had to put out a search warrant for it because it was doing too well, like eating (laughs) so quickly. Yes. And that it's collared, you know, was supposed to fall off, but it didn't. Mm -hmm. But the pandemic is still here, despite a miscommunication from... Uh, Dr. Fauci earlier this week. Um, yeah, Dr. Fauci <laughs> said something about the the pandemic phase being over. I think he walked it back, right? I don't think he said what he meant to say. Yeah, yeah. We're in a transitional phase, apparently, mm-hmm. where it's still a pandemic, but not a bad one. And yeah. I always put an asterisk on that when I hear that kind of stuff. Indeed. So, so where are you at, team? Um, more nervous, less nervous? Um, I was one of those people who was, uh, you know, bound to get it at this point because it had been so long back in April. Um, So I'm personally a little less nervous. um, But at the same time, you know, what's going out and what Fauci said is like over half the population has had COVID. So all these antibodies dancing around, everyone should be fine and it shouldn't be as bad as it was. But COVID's still here. So maybe you should all be a little cautious. Yeah, I um, <clears throat> I think, you know, if you weren't nervous, like if you haven't been nervous and if this if this news is, you know, making you less nervous, like you actually should be nervous. I am. Um, yeah. I am one of those people, you know, I'm boosted, uh, vaxxed and I got COVID and um, it just got over it about a week ago. And oh, it's, no. it was horrible. Um, my partner has it and it was worse for him. And, um, you know, I mean, I masked, uh, took precautions and I got it anyway. Um, and you know, and I, I just, I don't know. It feels like our health policy is, you know, and and maybe this is unfair, but it feels like it's being dictated by, you know, American frustration and, um, and frustration in King County too, with having to wear masks and, uh, and not so much by, um, by the fact that we are still in a pandemic. I mean, long COVID is real. 
you know, you can get it if your initial symptoms are mild and people with suppressed immune systems and vaccinated kids, uh, older people still exist. They're still vulnerable. So I still think it's, you know, the right thing to do, um, wear a mask, even if nobody else is. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm so sorry, Erica and Isabella, that you've had to go through this recently. And I hope your partner feels better, Erica. Um, I really appreciate the image of dancing antibodies. I mean, that makes me feel a little bit <laughs> happier right now, Isabella. But like something, when I think about my personal comfort level, something I've learned through the pandemic is that I can only speak to my own comfort because even within King County, we're all experiencing this pandemic very differently. Yeah. Like I'm not talking about comfort with giving up personal responsibility to your neighbors. I'm talking about your own perception of risk. And there are, like Erica was noting, still groups of people who are hospitalized or dying at higher rates than other people, especially older Americans. So am I more nervous for myself at this point in time? A little. I think about my comfort level in a very time-sensitive capacity and that I don't know what's going to be circulating in a few weeks. Um, I don't know what my access to health care is going to look like at that point, or even whether contracting Omicron will or whatever version of Omicron is out and about right now will still mean long COVID for me, but am I more nervous for vulnerable people? Heck yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like what Erica was saying, like public agencies might be dropping their mask mandates and getting more lenient, but that doesn't mean the risk isn't still out there. And we talked about this, I think a couple months ago with schools battling with, you know, angry parents coming in and asking the schools to drop their mask mandates. And we saw the state superintendent be one of the first to move to, suggest that they could drop their mask mandates in school, but a lot of parents are seeing those constant emails saying that their child was exposed. Yeah. Yeah. I was on a plane like two days after the TSA change, which I was not anticipating, let me tell you. And I was one of a few people on the plane with, you know, not even just like a mask, let alone an N95. But I was really taken aback to see that a lot of the you know flight attendants weren't masking. It was like, oh, I thought they would have my back in this, but the, going forward, we're all going to have to be making really personal choices. And I think even if I'm in a situation where people are frustrated with me for continuing to mask, I'm just going to have to hold my ground. Yeah. yeah, and it seems to be a problem of messaging. Um, and 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 I'm I'm just I'm very frustrated with the messaging that's coming out Mm -hmm. because I think people, you know, hear Fauci and hear Jeff Duchin say, you know, we're in, we're, we're, we're in the, we're out of the pandemic phase or it's, it's endemic. I mean, that's going to be coming. Um, And they, what they hear is it's safe now. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, things can be endemic and, um, and be bad, you know, HIV is endemic (laughs) in a lot of places in the world. Um, Malaria is endemic. It's not like endemic means safe. But when we're not, we're not, you know, the the American public by and large is not health experts. And so we sort of rely on that top level messaging to, to, to gauge our own personal safety and our own personal actions. And so I just, I think that if anything, it hasn't, you know, it's sort of veered into no alarmism whatsoever, nothing to worry about. Everything is basically back to normal and that's what people are hearing and that's what they're acting on. Yeah. I know we've got a lot to talk about, but I want to continue what Erica was saying where it's like just because something isn't a pandemic doesn't mean it's not a problem. There are so many like externalities with the pandemic. This isn't the only thing that we're concerned about when it comes to a medical crisis. You know, people have been experiencing deteriorating mental health for two years now. There are still conditions that people haven't been able to attend to that are getting progressively worse. And we have a healthcare workforce where even if hospitalizations were stagnant, you know, these are people who've been working 24, 7, 365 for more than two years now, and they aren't working with the same personal resources that they had when they started out. So, you know, and as climate change gets worse and more people are affected by the impacts of air pollution, we're going to have more, you know, underlying conditions. So I think that even if the pandemic isn't something where, you know, we're all sheltering in place for two weeks, not knowing if the world is ending, like, there are things that are under the surface, still huge issues. This messaging frustration came up this week um, because babies and toddlers and you know kids under five are still not eligible for vaccines. And our U.S. Senator, Patty Murray, questioned an FDA vaccine regulator about this. Throughout my state, I have had parents 
talking to me about this. They're frustrated. They're confused. Uh, and I am too, and they really do deserve some clarity on this. So for parents back in my home of Washington State, across the country, can you tell us when you expect a COVID-19 vaccine for young children? Essentially, the FDA guy answered that they are waiting to get complete applications from all the manufacturers. But Dr. Fauci, the White House chief medical advisor, has suggested that, well, if the FDA is on two separate tracks about which vaccine is in which step in the approval process, that's going to make the public even more confused and mistrustful of vaccines than they are now, which frustrates you. Know, there's there's a uh, this has been a, a back and forth in the pandemic in general about are we are we. Act, are we reacting to a virus? Are we acting to public psychology? And when? how do we toggle back and forth with that? KUOW asked a Seattle Children's Hospital doctor, Doug Dikema, how valuable are, are these child COVID vaccines? And he said, If I had a child under five in my house, I wouldn't be losing a ton of sleep right now about the fact that the vaccine isn't out yet. But I would be in line once it comes out to get my kids vaccinated. So is that confusing? Vaccinate your little kid, but don't worry that you can't vaccinate your little kid. Is that like walk, don't run? Yes. Yeah. There's a sense like with Fauci's messaging and with a lot of public health officials' messaging, like I mentioned earlier, that like things aren't as bad as they were over the last two years. So like you should relax a little bit, but at the same time, it's still a threat. So to me, there should be a little more of a sense of urging caution among people. But I feel like there's a sense of like, trying to calm people down and assure them that things are fine and they're on the side as they were. But I think there needs to be, again, more of an emphasis on personal responsibility to take care of others. I agree, Isabella. I think that focusing on how concerned we should be is maybe not the question that we should be asking, but rather how well we understand the repercussions of changing our behavior or whether it really is a huge ask of us to continue doing these preventative behaviors while maybe chilling out on the inside, even if like our external behavior doesn't necessarily seem like it gels with people who are feeling a little bit more chill. Like just because we feel calmer doesn't mean we need to do things differently. Like we can have both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, people, but people, and people are not rational. I'm not rational. Uh, it, it is hard to deal with. Are we dealing with the world as it is, or as we wish it were, et cetera? I'm, we're gonna we're gonna talk about other things. I just the last thing about uh, COVID. I wanted to suggest because I mentioned it briefly last week, but I'm trying to make it a thing. Uh, you mentioned airplanes where you don't have much of a choice if you bought a certain seat, but how about when you board a train, a bus, a ferry? If you're masked, you stand or sit next to the masked people. If you're unmasked, you sit with the unmasked people. Does that seem like a good idea? Just informally, <laughs> voluntarily. That solves like the peer pressure side of it. Because I know for one, like after mask mandates started being lifted, I'm walking in like the only person with a mask on. I'm kind of like, is this still okay? Like, should I also be unmasking even though I'm worried? So, but no. <laughs> Okay. I, I feel like I'm getting flashbacks to playing, um, what is it, dodgeball and being the last person standing on the one side and just being like, everyone is staring at me right now. How yeah. do I how do I continue going about my business <laughs> without yeah. attracting attention? I, I am like so oblivious. I feel like as I go through, you know, I mean, like I, I ride transit all the time. I don't really look at people. You know, I have like a very tunnel vision in my headphones. And so I, um, I have been wearing a mask everywhere um, that has not changed for the pan throughout the pandemic for me. And it's not changing now. I mean, I think I've said this before, but, you know, talk to me in six months and we'll see how it, how it feels then. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, now I just think, well, I mean, even if people are like looking at me and thinking I'm weird, I mean, you know, maybe uh, maybe they might think that I am somebody with the, you know, who's immunocompromised and think about that. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, but ultimately I think if your personal sense of safety says wear a mask, um, then you should wear a mask. And 
um, even more ultimately, I don't think that this should all be based on our personal senses of safety. I think we should be getting better information from public health officials than the mishmash that we're getting right now. We've got to right. move on to other topics. Erica, um, I want to, we've got uh, Hannah Weinberger from Crosscut, Isabella Breda from the Everett Herald. And Erica Barnett in the Publicola, you reported that uh, Seattle police officers who refused to wear pandemic masks did not get disciplined not from their supervisors and not from the office that oversees police accountability. Um, could, could you fill us in on why that is? Yeah, this is um, uh, the the Office of Police Accountability um, basically decided that they were not going to um, sustain a whole bunch of complaints about officers not wearing masks because it was, um, you know, to, to borrow a word from the last segment, kind of endemic. Um, it was a cultural problem that, you know, basically cops were just not wearing masks. Um, and so, you know, they, they said, this is just like, this is something everybody's doing. Um, and it goes to a deeper cultural issue in the department. And we can't enforce, you know, on a one, on a one by one basis um, against individuals who aren't wearing masks. The Office of the Inspector General, which is the port, report you're referring to, um, you know, came out and was, and was quite critical of this. Um, because, you know, among other things, the then director of the um, police accountability office, you know, said that he wasn't going to be the thought police for the cops. But, you know, if 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 the cops aren't going to be the cop police, the thought police for the cops, I don't know who is. Um, and, you know, these complaints were coming from from citizens, you know, people who were getting pulled over. Um, in fact, there was another one that came out um, after this report, you know, just just this month that you know, somebody got retaliated against or claimed they were retaliated against by an officer because um, the person who was pulled over asked the officer to please wear a mask when he was, you know, talking into his window and he refused. Hannah, you had a good, you had a question similar to to mine uh, about that that logic there. Right. I I don't cover cops in courts, so maybe I'm wrong, but I would assume that one step to remedying a cultural issue is to actually start holding people accountable, especially repeat offenders, like people getting a slap on the wrist four or five times, these supervisor actions that Erica's reported on, to send a broad message that something isn't culturally acceptable. And if the Mm -hmm. issue is so bad that it's beyond OPA's purview, why wasn't it more of a priority? It's like saying like, oh, COVID is so bad. States can't do anything until the CDC does. Like, what? Yeah. like no. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, I think that, you know, the problem that, um, that the OPA identified was like, it's not just that, you know, officers were doing this. It's that supervisors, you know, who have the ability to some extent to set the culture of the department um, didn't do anything either. And a lot of them weren't wearing masks. And so they were setting an example, you know, from almost the very top. I mean, police chief Adrian Diaz, you know, sent out a lot of memos saying, you know, you got to wear your mask, you got to wear your masks. But the fact is, like, people's supervisors weren't, weren't wearing masks, captains weren't wearing masks. So it was a, it was a top down problem. And so, you know, I think the solution would have been to, you know, for for the police chief um, to have really enforced this at the supervisor level and um, and for supervisors to have set that example, which they just didn't, you know, by and large do. I mean, there were certainly exceptions. There's some some kind of funny emails in the report um, of, you know, a, a captain who was, you know, just constantly yelling at his officers to, to like, come on, I know this is a pain in the butt, but you got to do it. Um, but obviously, you know, more people were not obeying the rules than than were obeying the rules. Right. Erica Barnett with the Publicola, Hannah Weinberger with Crosscut and Isabella Breda. I'd like to, to spotlight some of your reporting, too, when we come back about Edmonds uh, considering a ban on sleeping in public places. It's week in review. What happened this week? What does it mean? I'm Bill Radke. Don't go away. Quick break here. This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone. Thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give, and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks!
I'm Bill Radke. We are live streaming Week in Review on YouTube and Facebook, and you find that just by searching KUOW Public Radio. We've got Publicola's Erica Barnett here and Crosscut's Hannah Weinberger and Everett Herald City's reporter Isabella Breda. And Isabella, the city of Edmonds is considering a ban on sleeping in public places to put an end to people tent camping in parks. Most of the people at this week's Edmonds City Council public hearing were in favor, including this person named D. If a homeless person refuses help, it's time to offer jail or a bus ticket to anywhere else USA. However, there are not enough shelter beds to offer people, according to Mary Ann Dillon of the Snohomish County YWCA, who served on a homelessness task force. The task force's number one recommendation was to not criminalize homelessness, but in, to instead create other shelter options such as motel space. Isabella, you're in Snohomish County. You've been covering the story. What should our listeners know? Um, there's no shelter in the city of Edmond, but they're considering this ordinance which is something that is so incredibly mind-boggling to me. Uh, One of the main recommendations that came out of this task force that the mayor assembled last fall to try to come up with solutions was to create more shelter space because there is none. The closest one is in Linwood at the YWCA, and it only has space for 17 women and children. Um, Something that I reported on back in the winter was that there's limited cold weather shelter. Well, there's just no shelter really, period, um, in a lot of areas of Snohomish County. A lot of cities like to just dump the issue on the city of Everett, which again, if, um, you know, in talking to unhoused folks, it's really incredibly difficult to move all of your stuff with you to a different city and be away from the resources that you're connected with in that community. So anyway, there's a lot of uh, nuance to this whole situation, but the main thing like you know, people should know is that there is no shelter for these people to be referred to in their own community. That's Erica, wild. this is your I mean, beat as Martin well. Boise says that you says that you have to offer, you know, an alternative. You can't just criminalize homelessness or or even require people to move without criminalizing it without offering an alternative. So how are they getting around that? Are they just saying there is an alternative? And they don't have city? any. They don't have any. So it's de facto. So, yeah. So what the the way the ordinance is written and the city attorney like spoke at length about this was that they specifically looked at Martin B. Boise and said, you know, okay, well, we'll have to offer uh, shelter or services and there has to be available shelter space. And if they turn that down, then we can move forward with arresting them, finding them a thousand dollars. However, they didn't set parameters of how far away like the shelter space could be. And one council member suggested taking people like across the state. So, yeah. Like Isabella, you, you brought up one of the crucial issues. I mean, there's so many crucial issues here, but like at the core of this offering someone shelter that doesn't serve them isn't helping. And like, I know a lot of us in the pandemic who are lucky enough to be housed have developed really deep relationships with our, you know, immediate blocks, our immediate neighborhoods, and people might not, you know, own something in a geographic space, but we all develop communities where we are and asking someone to move across the state for a night is a big lift and it abdicates Mm -hmm. responsibility for these people who are our neighbors. Something else to note Mm -hmm. is like, beyond the fact that there's no shelter space in the city of Edmonds, they're currently relying on a motel voucher voucher program, which is coming from the Department of Revenue's funds, and those might run out. So the one resource that they might have in the community is possibly temporary. Mm. Eric, on your face. (laughs) I just, I I mean... Look, I don't think, you know, Seattle is not great on this, you know, Martin B. Boise front, in my opinion. But I mean, the the, the penalties for this, you know, that I read in uh, in your story, you know, are like are ridiculous. I mean, if you if you violate this, uh, this, you know, this law, if you quote unquote refuse shelter, you know, maybe across the state, you get a misdemeanor um, and, and up to a thousand dollar fine, which no homeless person can pay, obviously. Um, it, so I, I just, um, you know, it feels like something out of a different, it feels like something from the nineties. I mean, frankly, it's, yeah. it's so punitive. I live on Mercer Island where don't they have a pretty similar, um, 
law, and I don't know, you know, how whether that had to do with how many miles away shelter is, but I think, and I haven't followed it since then, but I think Mercer Island's in a similar uh, situation. Yeah, I think Redmond and Mercer Island have pretty similar ordinances that they passed yeah. compared to Edmond. Um, would you mind telling us uh, what you, I don't know that you've personally reported on this, and maybe you have, Isabella, but there's a another case that came out of Edmonds got ruled uh, on before our state Supreme Court. I think it was late last week. The Edmonds gun storage law was found essentially to be found to be unconstitutional. And um, I think Seattle has a similar law. Would you would you tell us what this Edmonds law, what it was requiring gun owners to do as far as safe storage that apparently cities aren't allowed to do? Well, essentially what the state Supreme Court ruling said was just that cities can't enact any ordinances or laws in their city about how people do store their own weapons. So they just have no power to do that anyway. So the mayor's idea initially, uh, Mayor Mike Nelson, was just to create something as a placeholder since there's nothing at the state or federal level requiring that you essentially lock up your weapons. Um, there have been several incidents where, you know, youth got their hands on guns and someone died. And that personally affected council members on Edmond City Council and the mayor as well. And so they were just trying to fill a hole there. And then they found out that they can't. Yeah. I don't know why Seattle would be any different. Don't they have a similar lawsuit challenging Seattle's safe storage law? Yeah. And the Second Amendment Foundation was helping. There were three Edmund citizens that were challenging Edmund's law, but it's um, they're out of Bellevue and they have a similar pending lawsuit against the city of Seattle. And I think their gun storage law passed in like 2018. And and I can turn it over to other panelists. I think they think one place where the Edmund's law went beyond the state requirement had to do with what happens if a child, if it's a particular child, as you as you were saying, gets hold of a of a firearm, the, the the state law doesn't lay out any restrictions about children, and and so neither can a city. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any any questions, comments before we move on from our other journalists on uh, safe storage? <clears throat> I mean, I think that you know, I, I I don't know what the stats are on like the effectiveness of laws like this, but. You know, clearly the stats on on suicide um, are very, you know, I mean, are very clear that if you have a gun in the house, um, it is it is, you know, more likely that there, you know, there will be a suicide, including, you know, among children. And so um, so it it does seem like, you know, even if you're okay with sort of people leaving their guns out, um, that that restriction about children seems, you know, particularly uh, important um, and, uh, you know, it's. It's, it's a little hard to believe that the state of Washington um, would would restrict that. Um, it, do you, Isabel, do you have a sense of why the, the state law uh, passed? Like what the, uh, you know, maybe this is beyond the scope of that story, but what is, uh, what was the reasoning? Was it just like f- freedom for gun owners or was there some, you know, evidence that, uh, that, 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 that there was like overreach at the local level? Yeah, as far as I know, there's like a state preemption clause that basically says that a city rule on anything surrounding gun storage can't preempt the state's law. Like the state has full control over all gun storage laws, which yeah, I don't know. yeah, that's my understanding. Washington preemption yeah. law. Okay, well let's we'll keep yeah. we'll keep we'll see what happens in Seattle and and elsewhere. On that, you're listening to Week in Review on KUOW. We've got to Isabella Brady here, cities reporter at Everett Herald, and Crosscut Science and Environment staff reporter Hannah Weinberger, and Publicola editor and co-host of the Seattle Nice podcast, Erica Barnett, all of whom are on Twitter. If you are concerned about what Elon Musk is going to do to Twitter, you might be a Seattleite. A, uh, the Seattle Times quoted a market research firm as ranking Seattle number two in America for percentage of Twitter users. So first of all, why do you all do you buy that? And why do you think that would be that we're heavy with the Twitter? Uh, I mean, <laughs> no, go ahead, Hannah. <laughs> I, I use it because my friends and colleagues can only listen to so many of my puns and jokes, and I will explode if I don't share them. Also, Twitter is my brain's trash heap. But I think that, you know, if you want to generalize an entire population based on 
stereotypes about the Seattle freeze. It's easier to interact with people at your own pace online. That is a, oh. a gross, a gross like assumption. I have no research to back that up. Thank um, you for making that clear, though. <laughs> I I actually kind of want to flip that stat a little bit because because um, the stat was that um, a little less than th- a third of Seattle area adults had visited Twitter once in the past 30 days. Yes. And I think I think what that actually indicates is that most of us are not on Twitter. And those of us who are on Twitter are sort of in this little club of insane people um, mm-hmm. and uh, who who are, you know, maybe, you know, the healthier ones are like Hannah making jokes. Um, <laughs> the ones who are perhaps a little um, less healthy in their habits like me are, you know, I mean, I also make jokes, but, um, you know, getting in battles over lo- local issues with people, you know, who with whose names make them anonymous. And I have no idea who I'm even talking to. Um, but, you know, I think, like it, it just shows how small Twitter is and, you know, you've got a panel of journalists. And so journalists are like a really, really prominent voice on Twitter and we're all on there and we think of it as the real world, maybe more than other people do, but <laughs> most not. people are like out enjoying the sun and, you know, I don't know, maybe they're on Facebook or something. I don't, I'm not on Facebook, but, um, Actually, may I, may I point uh, thank you. They're not you, in our you. little hell site. I so appreciate <laughs> you saying that Erica, uh, just on that stat alone, in, in case you don't know, and and I I I um I didn't delete it. What did I do? I deactivated my Facebook account. So, but so I I do look at Twitter every once in a while. But you're right that Facebook not only is Facebook way more used than Twitter, Instagram is way more used. Snapchat is way more used. I'm pretty sure TikTok is way more used. So. Thank you for a little perspective on Twitter, although it yes. seems so important. I, I will say that, you know, good things do happen on Twitter. I'm interviewing someone at the Crosscut Festival next week, Dr. Trevor Bedford, who's a computational virologist who gained, you know, a lot of online prominence at the beginning of the pandemic because he was one of the only people sharing transparently information that was going on about where um, coronavirus was spreading and how. But I honestly, like, I maintain a presence because I know that there are a lot of people who want to talk to me who are on Twitter and I try to be accessible. But, you know, as Gene Balk and y'all have noted, um, a lot of people are lurkers. And if we start to look at Twitter as reflective of communal sensibilities, we're going to have a very skewed opinion of what's actually happening out there because more people are flies on the wall than not. And I also think Twitter is not designed to facilitate information sharing. It's designed to facilitate advertising. So I don't depend on it for news gathering. And I would much rather follow someone around with their permission, with their permission, like IRL follow (laughs) and talk to people on the phone or otherwise, than try to get someone to return my DM. Hey, would you like to talk to me? Question mark, like sad face. I wish you'd respond. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I think it just kind of depends on what you're using Twitter for. Cause yeah. I mean, there's definitely a lot of reporting that, you know, that, that, that is, you know, Twitter is useful for, you know, for example, there are lots of people, there are lots of citizen journalists and self-appointed citizen journalists out there, you know, collecting information, sharing data, mm-hmm. um, you know, sharing, you know, there's a lot of police scanner people, for example, that I know were helpful to reporters um, during the protests a couple of years ago. So it, it, it kind of depends, but yeah, it is, I mean, it is kind of a health site and it's very performative and it, it attracts people who are performative and, um, and not people who, you know, are sort of wanting, um, you know, to gather information without the risk of being bullied. So yes. Isabella, I'm wondering, I, I, I've been hearing people say all week that they, that they're going to leave Twitter because Elon Musk is buying it. And I, and I'm wondering, is, is I'm leaving Twitter the new I'm moving to Canada, which you're not actually going to do? Oh yeah. Okay. No, totally. Okay. I don't think. I don't think all those people that say they're leaving, they're going to do the old, you know, I'm taking a break from social media and come back in like a week thing. Ah. Um, yeah. And what, what do you all think Elon Musk is going to do that's so... Are you, we, you just you just all dragged Twitter for, for like the last no, four no, no, minutes. No, no, no. So, no. You, 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 you don't also, I also hate it. it. So yeah. you, you're right, Hannah. You also said there. You, you all found worthy things about it. I'm sorry, but we're but we are we are seeing Twitter's flaws already. Um, Elon Musk didn't allow Donald Trump on Twitter. Trump was on Twitter already when all of us were on Twitter. So I'm trying to figure out what's the big threat from Elon Musk, if there is one. I 
think that Twitter is really about like its usefulness depends on how much you can cultivate it to serve your own needs. And if there's a point where, you know, I'm not able to go on Twitter without being harassed. And I hesitate to say this on the radio to give people ideas, Mm. but like if, if there's a point at which my joy that I gain from following my, you know, favorite comedians, humorists, capybaras, pro union (laughs) cats, bike blogs, weather enthusiasts. Like if that, if that is overshadowed by the extent to which I can't do my job because of trolls Mm. um, or like, you know, maybe I'll just make it private. So I don't have to deal with that. And I stop using Twitter for, for work. I don't know. I mean, he's saying that he's going to like restore free speech, but like, what does he mean by free speech? I don't know. And that's what's freaky, I think. Yeah, Advertising I mean, that's a little sketchier. <laughs> it, it feels like, I mean, honestly, you know, as somebody who does get trolled a lot and does get harassed sometimes, um, it feels right now like the moderation, the content moderation is not that much better than it was, you know, when Twitter was a little bit more of a free for all <laughs> and when they, yeah. you know, didn't really have any content moderation <laughs> guidelines, I, you know, it is almost impossible to get them to take action against somebody who's, you know, calling you, you know, the worst names or, you know, being racist or sexist or, you know, homophobic. I mean, it is, it's, it's hard already. I mean, it's, it's a health site. Um, and like, I, I am on it for <laughs> reasons that sometimes sometimes elude me, but you know, I, I it's it's hard to imagine, and I'll probably regret saying this, but it's hard to imagine it getting a whole lot worse than it than it has been in the past, mm-hmm. um, just because Musk is in charge. Right. You have three female mm-hmm. presenting journalists on right now. Like we we experience Twitter uh, in a unique way. I yeah. think. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> okay, two more questions before we move on. Number one, who is the Seattleite who's going to start the next Twitter, the next big thing, the next rich Seattleite? Or <laughs> number two, Elon Musk called Twitter the de facto public square. Could we have a public square that's owned by the public, like our public library system, instead of shareholders or billionaires? Could we actually do that? One of those two. Well, I, I read a really great piece this week from Kevin Schofield over at Seattle Emerald about what it would take for someone to create like a new Twitter. Mm-hmm. And the core of Twitter's functionality, which is just like enabling people to post, like that's fairly simple. But unless you have a huge influx of public funding and human resources, Um, and like a large investment in the technological infrastructure, like you're not going to be able to scale something like Twitter and you're still going to have all of the issues that Isabella and Erica were alluding to, like the whole content moderation and harassment mitigation issues, Mm -hmm. um, at any scale of, of a social network. So, you know, I guess it would depend on, would you rather use something that was government run to to use for the purpose of free speech dissemination. <laughs> well, yeah, this is this is the problem. Like, because I would say that probably if the government was running a Twitter or, or you know whatever whatever the the government version would be called, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you know that I say that they would probably find objectionable. Yeah. Frankly, yeah. like I mean, you could go mm. too far the other way. But I also think you know there are alternatives to Twitter. And, um, and people don't use them and, you know, they're not as sort of user friendly, but you know, they're just, they're not populated. And one of the reasons that Twitter is so great um, and so awful is that it's, you know, it's, it's very heavily populated. There's so many people that are on Twitter, you know, even if it is just, you know, 10% of the population or 5% of the population, you're exposed to a lot of people. And like, if you go to Mastodon, which is one of the alternatives that people are saying they're going to abandon Twitter for, it's just not like that. And it also is not as user-friendly. Yeah. You know, I've been, I've been joking about other ways to help people connect with my work, which is like one of the only ways that I can rationalize me being on Twitter as much as I am. Like it's to maintain a presence for people who might want to get in touch with me. And I'm like, leading contenders are like booby trapping the city so that people can get updates about my articles as surprises. Like imagine putting cash on an Orca card at a light rail station and getting like, here's what I'm up to at the bottom of your receipt or like sticking (laughs) printouts of crosscut into little free libraries or asking people to fill out self-selective micro local polls stapled to telephone polls. Like, I don't know what's easier. It might be more fun. Mm -hmm. I need a little bit of variety. (laughs) 
Uh, good ideas from Hannah Weinberger, Crosscut uh, Science Environment Staff Reporter. Everett Herald City's reporter Isabella Breda is here, and Public Cola's editor Erica Barnett. And we're going to take a short break. And since you mentioned Orca cards, let's talk about a cashless metro, and then let's talk about seed swaps and things that are making us smile for for the love of Pete when we come back. <laughs> It's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. We're streaming the show on YouTube if you want to look. And uh, Facebook, you just search KUOW Public Radio. We're covering the news of the week with three local journalists, including Erica Barnett from Publicola. Erica, the uh, board of directors of Sound Transit voted to uh, overhaul their fare enforcement practices. If you don't pay your fare, you're going to get more warnings. You're less likely to get sent to court. You can appeal. You don't get banned from uh, Sound Transit. Um, meanwhile, so we could talk about that if you want, but I saw you reporting on Publicola that King County Metro is apparently planning to eventually go cashless, no more paying cash when you board. And I wanted to know from you why that is and what are the pros and cons? Yeah, well, Metro says, and this is this is sort of an off in the future kind of thing, but they've been studying it and they released a report this month. Um, they say that um, it's going to be um, it's going to speed up transit if they no longer have you know the sort of slowdown you get at the fare box when people have to put their cash in, um, reduce um, conflicts with drivers over you know you only put in fifty cents or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, those are kind of the main. Oh, and also their fare boxes uh, are are really old, and so they would either have to replace them with new boxes that take cash, or they have to keep fixing them. And there's some interesting stuff in the report about the whole process of fixing these old fare machines, um, which they can do, but it's pretty janky, and they're you know they're ancient. They're like decades and decades old. So those are the arguments for the arguments against are basically that you know some people are always going to need to pay cash um, and. Uh, you know, including everyone from tourists to people with limited English proficiency, people who are technologically challenged, you know, or can't get to the Orca machines, Um, you know, lots of groups, people with disabilities currently have a really um, challenging process to get um, Orca access cards and and, and other types of fare, fair payment systems. So, you know, there's, it's going to be really inconvenient and some people are going to be left out and it's going to you know, most likely be the most vulnerable people um, and those who are kind of least have access to um, to Orca card machines. So um, so that's that's the that's the high, you know, the high level. um, And and they're still considering this. So it, it it's possible that it won't happen. Is this, but more does, likely does the strategy will. have to do with somehow making it easier to adjust the cost of an Orca card or give out free Orca cards in a way that's going to work better than, than if, if, if cash is a big part of the system? Well, no, but that's kind of happening on a parallel system. I mean, they are trying to make it uh, make it easier for people to because be, the there's a low income Orca fare reduction program. It's really, really underutilized. And so um, that's been a struggle for Metro um, and for Sound Transit, too, for a long time to to get people access to these cards that they have the right to get. Hmm. So there's there's a lot of push, you know, in this report, a lot of suggestions about ways to make that um, that a lot easier. Selling Orca cards, for example, you know, at corner stores um, from service providers, you know, just making them more broadly accessible, which, you know, all seems like a great thing. Um, but, you know, the advocates that I spoke to, um, advocates for transit riders, as well as advocates for people experiencing homelessness and people in poverty, you know, say that's 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 all well and good. But we need to at least preserve this option for people who, you know, who pay in cash because it's you know, it's a pretty it's a pretty significant percentage of, uh, of people who ride Metro who, you know, almost always pay cash or, or usually pay cash. It's you know, it's above 10 percent. So it's going to be a, a really big transition for those folks to have to always have a card, mm-hmm. um, especially people who are homeless, who often get, you know, their stuff swept and tend to tend to you know, lose things like like physical cards a lot. Right. Yeah. You know, Erica, at the bottom of of the piece we're talking about, there was a note about certain transit advocates who ask why why just not get rid of fares? You know, that's something that I think about a lot, especially in a city where we talk about having bold climate goals, trying to get people out of cars onto transit and where people who ultimately, you know, suffer the burden of enforcement the most don't have the money to pay their, you know, 
bears in the first place. Like how much money are we saving by making sure people pay their fares in the first place while also having to send out, you know, fare enforcers? Are there ways that we could support light rail um, that don't rely on fares? And could it be something like a publicly funded um, resource, like a library where we all use it and we don't have to pay to go in? Like these are things that are running regardless of whether we're on them. So I don't know. That's just something I think about. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, you know, I don't think we're moving in that direction. Yeah. Um, you know, there, this this actually touches on the sound transit uh, fare enforcement thing. I mean, sound transit has not been enforcing fare, uh, fare non-payment um, during the pandemic, and they're about to start doing it again. And one of the reasons um, that that board members gave for for wanting to do this is this idea. Um, I think I, I'm not, not going to quote it exactly, but <laughs> this idea that if you use the system, you have to pay for the system. And, um, you know, and that is, that is, that is a principle that some on the sound transit board and, you know, some transit planners really believe in, um, I would argue that like people who drive cars do not pay for the system, um, themselves, uh, people who, you know, the, the driving, uh, infrastructure roads, um, you know, everything that goes along with that is largely paid for by other taxpayers, you know, including people who don't drive. But in any case, I mean, it, it feels like we're not going in that direction. We're going in more of a, of a punitive and, and enforcement, um, direction. And, oh, to answer your question about the, the, the cost, it's, it's something like, you know, 20% of Metro is paid for with fares. So they would have to figure out a way to make up that money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that possible. I wondered about too, is like, if we have the ability to fund all of these massive projects to put roundabouts on highways in middle of nowhere towns, why can't we do the same thing as like a library benefit district for a transit benefit? District? I don't know, Isabella, why can't we? <laughs> Well, we're we're not going to have time to delve into these uh, arguments more now, but I know another argument that um that comes up when you talk about free fare is that if if it's free to ride, then there's nothing stopping you from riding all day, sleeping there. Um so there's that that's that's another subject. I'm getting head shaking from my guests. There's, I know, there's nothing that I want to do more than spend all of my time in a metal box with people I don't know yeah. sleeping next to them. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. I mean, this is this <laughs> okay. is just I mean, this is basically an anti-homeless, you know, <laughs> loitering. Oh, yeah. gosh. Yes. Yes. And yes. homeless people are going to get on buses and trains uh, to get some rest, no matter what, especially in, you know, especially when cities are passing laws saying that they can't sleep anywhere. it's not like someone's really benefiting from like, I don't know anyone who wants to be in that situation. How is their unhoused? Like Uh, how luxurious is it to sit on an uncomfortable metal seat? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I get it. By the way, one last transit note uh, before we wrap up here is that the, I saw the East side light rail line is of course running late and now is going to open in maybe 2024 now, not, not, uh, not next year. So I'm putting my retirement off for a year so I can write it to work one time before I die. And then, and I'll be out, but we'll, no, it's not that bad. Keep it's, Bill it's, on the radio. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to, we, we always want to leave listeners with something to smile about, um, you know, amid a, a news show that sometimes isn't smiley. And Hannah, I, I know from reading Crosscut, that, that, that you seem to be smiling about uh, springtime seed lending and seed swapping. Would you tell us? Yes, we are talking about libraries a lot today, and I'm mm. going to continue that. Yes, so we are. I think anytime that I eat anything with seeds, I have a choice. I can toss the seeds in the trash and rile up my local public utility because I, I put food products in the garbage. Mm. I can compost it. I can eat it, uh, which, you know, I have. I don't want to talk about that on the radio. Okay. Um, or I can save it. And I've been thinking about what we do with seeds recently because it's spring, gardeners are in planting mode. And over the past few years, there's been a dearth of seeds and a bigger awareness of food insecurity and a lack of a gardening community because it's been harder to hang out with each other. But in King County and across the country, actually, we have this incredible resource called a seed library, which is a repository of donated seeds curated by a librarian. And you don't borrow the seeds so much as take and replace them. But these libraries are fueled by people who save and donate seeds they don't need, and the seeds are free for people to take. I love that. I smile about that. And locally, (laughs) you can find that at places like the Northeast Seattle Tool Library. Did you know we also have 
super accessible tool shares. Libraries are great. And recently I tagged along at something called a seed swap, which is like a public showcase of our local King County seed blending libraries seeds. And I, in the pandemic, was so lucky to have friends who are good gardeners and I am not. And they prevented me from killing so many things because I had them as a resource. And with the seed library and the seed swap, you're able to talk to people who have grown specific plants before you in extraordinarily similar climates, maybe next door. And you're able to go out to your container strewn patio, or if you're lucky, a yard and say, like, I've gone dancing with the person who gave me that lettuce. Like, that's beautiful. <laughs> so that's what I am have been thinking a lot about. So uh, we're able to feel connected to each other and supplement our diets a little bit and feel close to people in a way that maybe, I don't know, maybe it's healthier than Twitter. <laughs> I was about to say it sounds even better than Twitter. Thank you. <laughs> Lovely. Anybody, any smiles before we get out of here and we can review? Well, in addition I to being could... glad to be over COVID, um, which I am, um, there, uh, there was a ruling in Texas this week um, that uh, Melinda Lucio, who is a mother of 12, who is scheduled to be executed, um, has gotten a reprieve of sorts. Um, she was uh, accused of killing her two-year-old daughter. Uh, lots of details online if you want to look into the innocence um, argument mm-hmm. on this. But um, in any case, her case is going back to trial court, and they're going to consider evidence that she's innocent. Um, and that, um, although a little bit of a grim Mm. item um, is making me smile. Excellent. Thank you. Isabella? Uh, There's a seven-year-old in Bothell who had a little celebration for going into remission. Uh, She got through her cancer treatment last weekend, and I thought that was the sweetest thing. Um, Go to the Herald website and check out the article by Rachel Riley. The Everett Herald, (laughs) seven-year-old remission. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for the smiles, everybody. Um, We've been talking to Erica Barnett, who's at Publicola, editor there, also co-host of the Seattle Nice podcast, and Everett Herald Cities reporter Isabella Breda and Crosscut Science and Environment staff reporter Hannah Weinberger. You know I smile when you guys come on the show every time. Thank you so much for another great week in review. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, y'all. I'll leave you one more smile, which is that uh, last week we were debating whether the Mariners did the right thing, changing their seventh inning stretch song from Louie Louie to Macklemore's Can't Hold Us. And a listener whose name I think is pronounced Coral wrote in to say, since no one can parse the lyrics of Louie Louie anyway, why not keep playing the Kingsman's dynamic, energetic, roof-removing music and just sub in the Macklemore lyrics along with the Louie tune? What a fantastic idea, Coral. My Producer Kevin Kniestet is talented enough to pull that off. So here is the Mariners' new, I think this is going to be coming to the park soon, the Mariners' new seventh-inning stretch song. Okay, sounds typical so far. Traditional Louie Louie. We're bringing it back. Return of the Mac. What? Yeah, what it is, what it does, what it is, what it isn't. Looking for a better way to get up out of bed instead of getting on the internet and checking a new hit. Get up. First shot, come strut walking. A little bit of humble, a little bit of cautious. Somewhere between like Rocky and Cosby's for the game. Nope, nope, y'all can't copy up. Woo! Moonwalking in this year is a party. My posse's been on Broadway and we did it all way. Grown music. I shed my skin and put my bones into everything I record to it. And yeah, I'm on. Let that stage light go and shine on down. Got that Bob Barker suit. Join us again next week for more Week in Review. Stay on my craft and stick around for those pounds.